HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. New member gifts available online. So I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 150 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today on... Tuesday, June 18th, I'm really confident that all of them are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today we have a great show lined up because it is the precursor to an even better show that is coming in July. Today we have a guest who actually was in our lead show for the summer season, His name is Josh. He is a VC guy, and he was on our first episode, which was about the Disrupt Food Summit. He was one of the panelists speaking about investing. So we have asked him to come on the show and do a live pitch show with us in July. So we're here to talk about what kind of things he wants to see, what he wants to invest in, and maybe that's you. So I'm going to say, Josh, thank you for coming back again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a really fun idea. We did a couple pitch shows last year, and they were very successful. And my dream is to sort of be like a mini Shark Tank, because I think it's really fun. So tell us, before we start, we will start, as we always do, talking about apps, apps that we love, maybe apps that have been on your home screen forever for the last 10 years, or maybe something new. The only rules for you investment entrepreneur types is that you cannot talk about an app you invest in or own. Fair enough. Yes. Okay. And so, if you have a fun app that you want to talk about that you've invested in or owned, we can talk about doing a separate show. Fantastic. So I actually have to look and see which apps I use the most, although I'm guilty of uh, reading the New York Post every day. Why that is, is that my guilty? guilty app. Okay. Um, Why is it guilty? Uh, it's just one of those things. A lot of people uh, make fun of me for reading the post. <laughs> but it's, you know, so you it's page peer, six it's, gossip. And, it's peer pressure that makes you feel guilty. Uh, it's peer pressure that makes me feel guilty. Yes, definitely for that. Page but, six is something that I've curated into my Apple newsfeed. 
I'm not going to lie. Sure, not the I entire think, New York Post, just page six. And I think a lot of people do it. And of course, I always use the weather app because you always got to know what's going on. And I use my photo app a lot because I have two kids. And so I'm always you know, messing with their photos and doing stuff and things of that nature. Other than that, I'm guilty of using my email app and of course, the calendar app. So none of the, um, those efficiency apps that the entrepreneurs are, are, are enamored with, the slacks and the those types of communication channels and organization. Right. Well, that's typically if you need Trello. the discipline for that organization. I mean, I'm an ex-banker and I was very disciplined back in the 90s before the internet even existed really in a broad medium. And so you had to have discipline and respond and, you know, I'm well-trained in that regard. So I'm very disciplined on that sort of stuff. So we use email, certainly use text. We actually don't use Slack in the office anymore. We ripped it out. Interesting. Because it was becoming unwieldy simply because of how we operate as an investment firm. Right. Uh, when you're in a corporate setting and you're doing programming stuff or you're siloed, it's a very good system for that. There's actually a new app called, uh, I believe it's uh, Threads, which uh, we've heard about, and it's starting to uh, supplant Slack. Oh. And we are not investors. Okay. So. Well, that's interesting. Well, something has to supplant something at some point. Sure. There needs to be progress and more options. Back there in Mission Control, we have our engineer, NHRN studio manager, Matt. How are you? I can see you. Uh, I am well. I can't always see Matt because he has this uncanny ability to put himself right in between the two windows. I've sized myself so that I can fit right there. <laughs> How are you today? How is Beer Sessions Radio, which is the fantastic show that's on right before Tech Bites? Beer Sessions Radio was wonderful. Uh, there were They were diving deep into the cellar of Jimmy's 43. Okay. Very nice. And if I used one of those beer tracking apps, that would have been a lot of fun, but I don't do that. Beer tracking apps. Do you uh, have a different app? Are you, you tracking were, something else? If you, were, if you were in that world, it would be like untapped or some <laughs> such thing. <laughs> so no beer tracking. Are you tracking something else? No. The only thing I had in my brain was a uh, Snapseed for photos. Okay. It's, uh, it's the best photo manipulating app I have gotten my hands on. And what do you use it for? Because I, mean, I think I, of you mostly as an audit, auditory person because you're the sound person. Yeah, I don't use it for much. I use it for I use it once a week for the one show that I provide an image for. <laughs> I mean, you know, occasionally I'll use it for something else personal theoretically, but I don't actually. I'm not like much of a photo person, so. Because you're uh, an audio person. Sure. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Thank you for sharing. You can. Go back to your beer and standing right behind that odd little slice between the windows. Thank you. <laughs> so Josh was here in May as a part of the Disrupt Food Summit panel. That was show 175, if people want to go back and listen to that. And as an investor and a VC investor, it's always so interesting to me to hear the point of view of the people who are really voting first with their dollars. We talk about consumers being the arbiters of what we have in this world because they vote with their dollars. But there's a whole early barrage of people who voting with dollars on a much more fundamental level who in many ways are making decisions about what even gets to consumers. 
uh, before we even have that opportunity. So it's a very interesting phenomenon. It's a hugely important part of startup companies in the food tech space because if you don't get funded, in many instances, you don't keep going. So what we like to do here on Tech Bytes is we like to give people opportunities. So we are going to give the opportunity to two companies to come on the show in July and live pitch Josh. So Josh, tell us, tell us about what you are investing in right now and what you're most interested in. So in terms of your listener base, you know, there's probably two areas that are most relevant. The first is an actual food product. So one of my accolades is I'm an ex-professional chef from Ooh, here in New York. Where? And where, where, so where? I was at Craft Restaurant many years ago. With Tom Clicchio. Uh, with Tom Clicchio wow. and Mark Kenora and Jonathan Benow and a host of others. Wow. And so... What station did you work? Uh, so I worked my way all around from Garmarger to proteins to fish to starches. I mean, the, the kitchen is run very differently than other kitchens, but this is going back, you know, 18 years ago. So I'm probably the only venture capitalist that was a professional chef. I probably. actually I have haven't yet to heard of any one. others. Certainly some have passions, but uh, that has given me a good insight into food products and uh, beverages and just uh, the space in general. So I have a passion for it. And it's, it's an area that we've become more and more interested in as a fund. And we've, done, we've made some investments, uh, which will go unmentioned, um, that, have, that have gone very well. So for food products that I like to see... But before we get to food products you like to see, why is your fund more interested in food right now? Because two of the investments that we've made uh, over the last several years in that space have gone over very well. And we have found that when consumer products really hit their tipping point, they can scale dramatically faster, uh, which provides a great return for the venture capital investment, right? So from an investment standpoint, they make good investments if they are gonna work very well. And food has created a situation where you don't need to be a huge CPG conglomerate in order to have a successful food business. You can really disrupt the norm. You can go to small manufacturers. You can do a direct-to-consumer model. You can do a digital model. You don't have to do a brick-and-mortar model, although that helps, especially with food discovery. But you can be very successful early on, and then you can get acquired by one of the larger companies. Sir Kensington so, comes to mind. Sir Kensington comes to mind, things of that nature. So essentially, M&A, you know, the process of mergers and acquisition or purchasing other companies by large conglomerates, has become almost the new R&D. It's very hard for a huge billion-dollar company to say, okay, I'm going to create a new type of yogurt or snack bar or water or whatever – because I can't do that in my existing manufacturing capabilities, right? Also, the people that work at these big companies, their first thought process is not innovation, it's do no harm, right? right? I want to keep my job, I don't want to screw up. Do and no so, harm to myself, not the, necessarily the planet or the people. Correct. Because <laughs> right? do, no, do, no, or do harm no harm to is, my company. Can be a social point of view sometimes. For well, companies. that's actually one of the mantras of a lot of the new companies, which are do no harm to the environment. So, more of them are environmentally sensitive, recycling mm -hmm. packaging, low carbon footprint, low impact, uh, low glycemic index, no sugar, no preservatives. And as a father, 
you know, I have to feed my kids much of this stuff. And it's very important to me that they get fed really more whole type of food products as opposed to processed materials. So right now, Rubicon Venture Capital, which I don't know if I stated that at the top of the show, which is um, the fund that Josh works for with, owns. in, owns. <laughs> if you want to follow along at home or at the office or wherever you may be listening to the podcast, it is rubicon.vc is the website. You can check out their portfolio and the team. So more and more interested in food products because they're a good return on investment and because the way the industry is evolving, larger companies are using innovators to innovate for them because they just can't figure out how to do it because they're too big. They almost can't go back. So they have to buy something or buy or set up a little shop. Do you think, uh, and this is a completely tangential question, but do you think that that's why you see companies like Chobani setting up incubators as side projects? I think a lot of these companies like Chobani, Mars does it, a few others do it. I think that, you know, they're doing it to stay relevant in the ecosystem. They want people to know that they're looking out for new products and services. On occasion, they might find something that they really like and want to foster and innovate on. But a lot of times they can't. So it's a lot of it is window dressing mm-hmm. and not more than anything else. On occasion, An extracurricular they might, activity, extracurricular activity. Mm-hmm. They want to give back. And you never know, they might make an investment. The reality is, you know, for any of these big billion dollar conglomerates, investing in a startup is not going to move the needle, but they might come up with an idea. So I think it was uh, Nestle, if I'm not mistaken, or uh, Cargill, somebody invested in Beyond Meat early on and then exited before the IPO and just recently came out and announced that they're going to come out with their new imitation, their own imitation meat product, right? So, you know, they probably got the idea, got some learnings, and then we're like, okay, got let's some do this themselves. secret sauce recipes. Uh, maybe a little bit. I mean, there's very strict rules around that sort of mm-hmm. stuff, but definitely they would have gotten the idea, right? And so Beyond Meat, which has been, you know, a fantastic, uh, great story, it, it's not going to be alone. There are plenty of people out there that are going to attack this market. Pat Brown. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pat Brown is the founder of Impossible Foods, which has the Impossible Burger, plant-based burger, and did is in doing a venture with Burger King. They have the Impossible Whopper, and they had to build a whole brand new production line in Oakland, California for the Impossible Whopper, which right. I haven't had yet. Here's the thing, though, about a lot of these foods. They're not necessarily better for you. No, they're not, actually. Okay? Like, there's more on sodium a, in them. Level. There's more preservatives. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a better nutritional product it's better for the environment not necessarily either interesting okay because the amount the carbon footprint of the substitution products isn't necessarily less than the original product it's less water though which i believe is the the cattle so part of it is less water that can be but you don't necessarily know what's going into the deliverables the marketing and things of that nature Mm -hmm. i haven't studied that for each Mm -hmm. of the two substitute meat products but from a health nutrition wise it isn't necessarily better for you and the amount of water you're saving on a very defined product is immaterial to the amount of water that is used in society at large fascinating so many different points of view when you look at new products and new companies and people who are trying to make a change it's almost like a sweater where you pull one side and the other side goes one way absolutely so you were interested you rubicon 
venture capital is interested in food products because it's good business. Is there a philosophical or philanthropic or environmental point of view at the office or no? Uh, there's not necessarily a philanthropic. I mean, we are a for-profit enterprise. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, we have to return capital to mm -hmm. our own investors, mm -hmm. which drives us. There can definitely be a social impact aspect to the businesses, but at the end of the day, they have to be able to be profitable, make money, and eventually exit at a higher valuation than what we got in on. So we can't afford at this stage to simply back a company just because we love the company and we love the messaging if it's not going to be a commercial success, right? That's not how we operate. Right. Uh, on an independent basis, I myself might do that on a personal level, but I would mm -hmm. never do that with you know LP dollars. Essentially, that's that's not my job. My job is to make them money, right? <laughs> and then and then they can do good for the world with what they're doing. Exactly. Well, it takes own. money to make money. So Correct. once you have that, then you can spend it as you wish. Correct. So for the pitch show for Tech Bytes in July, we are going to look at two different categories, and the first one is going to be a food product. Yes. So if you are a founder that has a new food product company, listen up, people. So tell us, what type of food products are we interested in? So ideally, I like products that are either purchased daily or consumed daily. So it's got to be something that someone is going to use every day or maybe every other day, and it has to be of a significant price point. So typically, we like to see the spend of you know $2.50 and up per day. So it's not like you can come up with a new jar of peanut butter that's bought maybe once a month or every two months and we're going to fund that. We're not going to do that, right? So if it's a beverage that's consumed every day or fruit so product So a coffee would be a good day. example of something uh, like that. A coffee People is buy a, a coffee every day or Anything that you're breakfast. purchasing every day or a breakfast item or something like that. Dinner item. Uh, dinner lunch. item. You know, we looked at a bunch of the um, meal kit companies back in the day. We didn't fund any of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, simply because the waste is too high. You know, I've so, never done meal kit companies on this show because I like guests to have a positive experience and I've never been able to reconcile the delivery and the packaging and that component to it. It just seems, I understand it, but it just seems so wasteful. The, I imagine the piles of boxes, yeah, you know, in an wasteful. apartment in New York City, which is tiny, and where would they go? And it doesn't matter that they're recyclable because then it's still a giant mountain of boxes. Sure. So I've never done, I've never, I've never invested the show time in meal kits either sure. for that reason. So the, the other parameters are we like to see low to no sugar, and that includes natural sugars. So we definitely don't like stuff that has additive sugar, but a lot of um, natural foods or new food products will use dates or beets in their mix, which are, have a naturally high sugar content to give flavor and taste to the food. I don't necessarily like that personally. I think sugar is essentially a poison for your body. And so it really needs to be eliminated as much as possible. By the same token, we don't necessarily want to see, you know, tons of, uh, you know, artificial sweeteners in there as well. So you got to find the balance and find the right sweetened type product or savory type product that we would like to see. That's not to say that those products won't be successful. They probably will be. I just won't fund them. So an item that you would purchase daily, does that include something like a snack bar or a functional beverage? So snack bars are interesting. Snack bars typically are not actually eaten every day. I mean, some people that are really into sports that are doing um, 
you know, going to the gym every day and they want their cliff bar or something like that. Those can be very successful. We wouldn't do it. Snack bars don't have a very good direct to consumer type of uh, attraction because you need to send a lot of them. So they need real volume. And so you need to pr- play the brick and mortar game for the snack bar market. Same thing for potato chips and things of that nature. Uh, and eventually there is some fatigue in there. But some snack bars have been very successful. Kind Bar is very successful. Cliff Bar is very successful. RX Bar very successful. Uh, it's just not something that we do, right? So uh, I wouldn't be doing really a snack bar unless it's something absolutely positively unique, right? And we've seen some stuff in the category. Beverages are much more interesting. Beverages, however, are very heavy. They need to be shipped. They need to be distributed. They need to be stored. Price point is a factor. And if you look at a beverage... Potentially perishability also. Well, a lot of beverages today are shelf-stable, so the perishability is less of a concern unless it's you know, like a cold-pressed juice product or something like that. But with... Um, you know, inventory controls these days, you're going to make and sell pretty much in the same day. The key is you have to have repeat customer use. You can't just have distribution to 10,000 stores. You need repeat sales in each of those stores to make sure that your customers are coming back time and time again. And that makes for a very good product. So from the beverage side of things, that's the kind of stuff that we would like to see. And you also have to be funding properly. A lot of food products take a lot of money because you got to build up inventory. And so not everything is venture backable. So the entrepreneur needs to be careful that if he's going to take venture capital, he's got to you know, acquiesce to venture style returns and the benchmarks that we set. Venture style returns. We're going to talk about that when we return from our break because I do want to hear more about the specificity of that. I think it would be very helpful People hear the term venture capital and they almost think free money in some ways, but there are certainly attachments to it just like any other type of investment. We would love for you, our listeners, to make an investment in Heritage Radio Network. It is our 10th anniversary this year. That's right, people. Heritage Radio Network went on the air in 2009. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. That means for the past decade, We have kept the lights on and the mics hot entirely from the generosity of our members, who are mostly listeners like you, grants, and underwriters like this one. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. 
Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today we are talking to Josh Siegel of Rubicon Venture Capital. He is talking to us today about what types of companies his fund likes to invest in, because we are going to have a live pitch show in July. Are you a startup founder who has a food product or restaurant software company and you are looking for funding? Well, this may be your lucky break. We are taking decks from companies. You can email them to techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We spent the first half of the show kind of going through uh, what types of companies Rubicon VC is interested in investing in and the first category of company that we're going to have on the show, which is food product. And Josh is very specific about what he's interested in. Low sugar, daily purchase, good price point, good distribution. Tastes good? Must taste good. If Must it taste if good. If it doesn't taste good, we're not going to fund it. <laughs> <laughs> And geographically, it can be anywhere. The companies can be anywhere. The one sticking point is you have to be available to be in the studio live for the actual show. So at the top of the uh, show, we talked about food products, how they're really, it's an interesting moment right now because the larger global companies are really using startups as their R&D lab, which is fascinating it's interesting, though, because often food products and certainly restaurants themselves are never really funded by venture capital. Why is that? So typically it takes a lot of money to get off the ground for a food product or for a actual restaurant. <clears throat> Some restaurants have been able to raise venture capital, like Sweetgreen is a perfectly good example that's here in New York. And if, the, if it's a highly scalable solution and it's re- you know, repeatable, then you can get venture capital. Food products need to work the same way where they have to be able to sell time and time again. You can't have sort of a stagnant quarter or something like that where you're just not growing, right? Because venture wants to see growth time and time again. So you need to have a product that when it hits the market, it's really accepted very quickly and you can scale rapidly, right? If you can't do that, it's going to take you years of R&D or something like that. It's not usually a venture-backable type of business. When you, as a venture capitalist, say scalability, what types of numbers are you talking about when you think of a food product? Because scalability is not a universal Right. Typically, you want double-digit growth on a month-to-month basis. So, you know, 10% or higher month-over-month, every month, consistently. Right? And a lot of that has to do, since we're getting in early, where people are discovering your product, they're making a purchase, and then they're making a repeat purchase pretty quickly. Okay, So as long as you can show that people like your product and want to use it time and time again, and that's basically engagement, then you've got something that's backable. It's not that you have to use venture. Maybe you can use debt. Maybe you can use a bank loan. Maybe you can use your credit cards to fund it, whatever it is. But if you need money that's used to risk, which is what venture capital is essentially, 
<clears throat> it's not too difficult to get it if you hit all the right points, right? You can, you can certainly get capital from other sources, but venture capitalists are in the risk game. That's what we do. What are the downsides to venture capital? So the downsides of venture capital is that you are giving up a piece of equity of your business, and typically depending on the stage that you're getting funding, you're giving up anywhere between you know, 20 to 25% and sometimes up to 35% in every round. Right, so there's dilution in every round. That's a, that's an important asterisk. <clears throat> Correct, but it's also money that you're not personally liable for, and it is going into your company. So you do want to be careful to make sure that you have an operational runway of a certain amount of time, and we typically like to see about 18 months. So in case anything does go wrong, which it always does, you have enough time to pivot, maneuver, and fix the problem. Right. Also, there's plenty of money in venture capital. There is so much money sitting on the sidelines waiting to be deployed that it is ripe for the taking, right? So you just have to find the right VC with the right fund at the right time to write you a check, right? You also then have to report, though. So it is your company still, but you have shareholders and stakeholders that expect you to tell them what's going on. So you can't just do anything you want. There has to be alignment between the investor and the founder. And usually VCs, we're backing the founder, the founder team, the product. You back people. We back people, mm -hmm. right? And so we, we back the person and the product. We're not just backing a, a person. And so um, it's very important that you have the alignment, you have that communication, and you know what's going on. If there's ever any decisiveness, uh, divisiveness, it can cause a problem. So we've described the type of food products that you're interested in. Now we're talking about the type of company in terms of the stage that you're interested in. You are interested in looking at companies, as you just said, that do have some traction, that have made product, that's selling product, that has repeat customer business. So you're looking at late seed companies that are maybe doing up to a million in revenue? So typically it's late seed series A. So for consumer product companies, we actually want it to be over a million dollars. So typically it's about 150,000 a month, but the product has to be out there. Like we recently reviewed a product where it had raised 180,000 on Kickstarter and pre-sales. That is not telling me that the product is really acceptable as of yet because people haven't tasted the product. And they haven't they, gone, they don't you have don't it. have repeat business. They don't have repeat business. So it's very important that you have that repeat business and you can show, you know, where it's coming from. You know who your customer is. You know the price point. You've tested it out, which is why we like to see the numbers that we like to see. It lowers the risk for us. So that is for a food product. The other category of company we're going to take a look at is restaurant tech, restaurant software, restaurant platforms. So in this category, we're looking for something that is more than, as you described earlier uh, on our phone call, more than a feature. Correct. So a lot of companies will come up with an idea to solve one particular pain point, which may not be all that large. And so that's a feature set. So it's Is that delivery or kiosk ordering? How, it how could would you be, it could be delivery, kiosk ordering. It could be, you know, just a, hey, where do we sit people in our restaurants? Uh, what do we charge for a certain menu item based on some data or something like that? And features just aren't all that interesting because someone else can throw money at the problem and figure out the feature. You want a real product suite where somebody has to engage with the product every day. So right? the restaurant operator <clears throat> staff. So the restaurant operator needs to engage with it every day, sometimes several times a day. 
uh, especially if there's data involved and they have to input data or take out data or the system needs to tell them something about how to operate the restaurant. So that would instill the fact that this product is very sticky and if they need to engage with it every day, it would be very difficult to tear it out, right? Now, the things with restaurants is a lot of them fail. Like yes. Most restaurants fail within a year. And more so, legacy and restaurants that have been open for a few years are starting to just close rapidly. They are. So one of the things that we also like to see are companies that are attacking you know, restaurant groups. So typically, it's a formula-type restaurant where they're replicating that formula or several different formulas, and they're known to, hey, when we open a restaurant, this is what we do. We know what we're doing. It always works. And if you're giving them a piece of software that can coordinate between the different restaurants and give reporting or you know, whatever it is, that's valuable. People are willing to pay for that. There are so many struggles in the restaurant software and restaurant tech side of things that start with legacy hardware and programs that are people are building on and also you know the difficulty for many operators to be able to sift through all the different new alternatives and know which are the good ones which are going to be the lasting ones which are going to integrate it's almost it's almost like buying health insurance where you just have like all these a million plans a million places to go a million places to buy what's the good one what do you do it's very confusing and it's very stressful. And as time goes by, there are just simply more and more tech choices that restaurants have to make and more and more tech issues that they have to solve. And it doesn't seem that there's a, a clear path to making good decisions. Well, there can be a clear path, but it really is about selecting the right suite of services. And so there are a number of software packages out there where... If you're starting a restaurant, they will tell you, okay, if you're using this kind of POS, you want to use this kind of CRM, you want to use this kind of reservation system. And basically, between four or five systems, you've really got it all done, and you figure out which one works for you, which is the best price point, what is it really going to cost you, and how effective is it really going to be. But restaurant tech is a ground game. You have to go to the restaurants. You've got to sell them on what's going on. Now, if you sell to a restaurant group, typically they have 10 restaurants or more, then you've got 10 accounts as opposed to one account. Or if you sell to a franchise-type system, you could have hundreds of accounts, right? So it depends on what you're designing for, and you want to make sure that is a must-have product. It's funny to think about something like technology being a door-to-door salesman job. <laughs> it, it very much can be, though. I mean, if you think about it, people that are running physical establishments... They never leave. They're they there. never leave. You they want people to see, see what's there. going on. Yeah. You can get to them using a digital ad strategy. But think about a new product that gets into a restaurant, whether it's a food item, a beverage, or even software. A distributor has to go to the restaurant and let someone taste it. Mm-hmm. Restaurants are very tactile environments. So you would never serve a vegetable or a meat or a drink in a restaurant without tasting it first. Of course not. Right? You might sell Grey Goose and be like, okay, I'm going to have you know 18 different kinds of vodka and whatever. I know what they all taste like. But if there was a new type of gin, you'd be like, all right, I want to taste it. Mm-hmm. Or if you're going to get a new meat or a new kind of vegetable, you need to taste and feel. Similarly with software, these people want to see and touch it. Right? So you have to have a demonstration to know what's going on. And a lot of times, the people that are running the restaurant don't have time to take calls Absolutely on not. the phone in the yep. office. They are watching the register. 
All the time. All the time. It's a it's a twenty four seven job, running a restaurant. Yeah. And most people start restaurants because they have a great pizza recipe, like Roberta's, Quite and they possible. make Sauce. you know something delicious. They're not IT people. They're not CRM data crunching people. Right. So, we our last show at the end of 2018 um, was about restaurant closings as being the trend for 2019. And as sad as it is, uh, part of what we discussed on the episode was that the, the chefs and restaurant groups that are successful now that are going to be successful going forward are the ones that have a chef culinary creative driving force paired with a business force and that um, you really need two sides of that coin to be successful today? So I would say that you don't necessarily need to have the full chef um, Interesting. moniker, depending on the type of restaurant, mm-hmm. because it may be that the style of the restaurant is you know fast casual or something like that, or it's just a known brand. And while you want to have a good chef there, you're not necessarily looking for inspirational new food. Take, for example, Pastis, which just reopened in the meatpacking district after being away for five years. The chefs that were originally part of the restaurant are no longer there. The new chefs are actually very quite talented, but the restaurant is really based on its name and its brand. It's a, co- it's a complete and experience. So it's a complete experience, even though it's just a French bistro, right? Mm-hmm. So if Pastis was opening up today, right now, yeah, no big deal, right? But since it was opened, you know... 21 years ago, I think now it's it is. It's a legacy brand. It's got a brand. It's got a moniker. Everyone wants to be there. Same thing with like a Balthazar or something like that. So there are a lot of restaurants that are like that, certainly in New York and other locales, that will survive simply because they could just pick up, leave, mm-hmm. move to a new destination, and people are still going to go because the restaurant is known for good. Now, the food still has to be good, right? And the chefs are what make the food good. And consistently good. And consistently good. But people don't necessarily always have to hear about, oh, there's this great new chef in this new restaurant. They just be like, oh, have you heard of the new restaurant? They want the steak free to be exactly the same. Except in this case, the steak free at Pestis is actually very different because there's three different cuts of steak that you can get, which you normally couldn't get before, Mm -hmm. right? And I I loved Pestis back in the day. It was such a good spot. So Now is the time for it also with the outdoor seating. Sure. Sitting outside, rosé, steak sure. frites, so good. <laughs> oh, I'm being nostalgic. I haven't been to the new one yet, but I have very fond memories of it I pass it, it every day on my way to work. Have you been? Not yet. Okay. Well, maybe you should go and report back. So we talked about the types of companies that you're interested in seeing. Tell us what type of pitch and what type of deck you like to see and what you like to hear. So typically we like to see a deck that's anywhere between 15 and 20 pages. Anything longer than that is just wasteful information. Do you think all of those pitch deck templates that are online are useful and are what people should be following? Uh, Some things are very useful. So you want to introduce us to the problem that you're solving. We want to see the product. We want to understand the team. We want to understand your market. And we want to know your traction. We want to see your revenue model, what your margins are, what your customer acquisition costs are, what the long-term value is. There are very simple things that you need to hit. It's not just about vision, right? And for us, because we want you to be in revenue, we need to know that your vision is actually coming to a reality and people are buying your product. We do not invest in ideas. That's not what we do at Rubicon. We invest in execution. We want to know that you're doing what you say that you can do, right? So a deck is very important. You know, it's good to tell the story, but at the end of the day, I need to know what's going on, right? 
What do you think of the standard clip art and bullet points and deck language? I've always been amazed that as soon as something, as soon as a page becomes horizontal, the tenets of you know, proper English and good writing seem to go out the window. So sentence fragments are fine. I mean, you're using bullets. You're not writing a business plan. We're not reading business plan. Charts and graphs are always good to see because it's very easy to understand what's going on. Infographics. Infographics are good, but you know the the less words, the better in terms of explaining what your product is. Just be very succinct about it. And a lot of founders do have a challenge in explaining their product to people that are outside of their industry. So you got to know your audience, right? And the thing with us is, we only invest in products that we either know or can help with, right? So I probably wouldn't fund a new you know, industrial feed type product for animals because I don't know nothing about the space, right? But, you know, if somebody came to me with a new type of bread product that could be mass uh, marketed and sold, I might look at it. Or someone came to me with a new type of beverage, as long as it met our parameters, absolutely, I would fund it. A new uh, snack bar, probably not for us per se. Uh, New potato chip, definitely not. You know, we don't fund that kind of stuff. No snacks. Not really. Although they could be a daily purchase for some people. There could be a daily purchase for some people. We've seen a lot of new like chocolate chip cookies and things like that, but most of them have too much sugar. So there's no point. So that's the deck. What about the in-person pitch? What do you want to hear from people? And what should be the difference between the deck and the pitch? So... When you're coming to a pitch, assume that the venture capitalist has already read your deck, right? So we don't want to just hear the deck again. That's not what we're there for. We bring people into pitch because we have questions and we have to taste the product, okay? The product has to taste good. If the product doesn't taste good and you're like, oh, well, we'll fix it in the next line, then I'll just wait until the next line, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to ask questions on your customer. We're going to ask questions on your sales cycle. We're going to ask questions about your own innovation team. How do you decide to make a product? How expansive can the product be? Where are you going to sell it? How are you going to sell it? What's your digital footprint? All those kinds of things that may or may not be in the deck. And then it's also going to be about how much money do you really need for 18 months? Where will you really get to? What are you really going to spend it on? And a lot of it also has to do with how much of the company you currently own. A lot of times founders have taken early money and they might not own much of their company anymore. And that worries us. Because if we're investing in you and your team, you have to be incentivized to be there. So we want to make sure to protect the entrepreneurs, not only from other capitalists, but from themselves to a certain extent, right? So we've seen situations where one day we'll meet the founder, we'll see the product, we'll pass. Six months later, there's a new CEO and the founder isn't really there anymore. And that happens a lot. Cautionary tales. Mm -hmm. So those are things you do want to see. Tell me... Tell us what you don't want to see. Uh, what's 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 an immediate game over? Immediate game over is if you're building a lifestyle business for yourself where you're going to pay yourself like $250,000 because you live in New York and you think you deserve that kind of salary. That's a no-no. <clears throat> you're better off paying yourself a minimal amount and using that money to hire someone to make your business even better. So we get worried about that. We are worried about founders that have unrealistic expectations of their valuation where they have a new product, they've done a million in sales, and they think they're worth you know, $25 million. And that's just not the case, right? Now, the market will speak. You'll either get the money from somebody who wants to give it to you or you won't. 
uh, more than likely you won't. But simply having gotten money before from angel investors doesn't mean that you're going to get the same valuation parameters from the professionals, right? Because we do this every single day. So those are instant disqualifications. And, you know, we want to work with good people. We want to work with people that are transparent. You're coming in for a meeting. I ask you a question. Give me a direct answer. If you don't want to share that for some reason, just say, well, you know, I'm not really ready to share that. Then you should expect to leave that meeting without a yes. Because I, there has to be a, a clear back and forth. Are there any stories that you can share about the most amazing pitch you ever heard or the most terrible pitch you ever heard? Without naming names, but just sort of the, the feeling or the thing that made it so amazing or so... So I've heard a lot of great pitches. At the end of the day, part of the pitch is the taste of the product. And in one particular case, I committed capital at the table. I tasted the product, loved the founder, loved what they were doing. I was like, I want to invest in this company today. Right now, we we would say that, and of course, do our proper due diligence and things of that nature. But there comes a time where you have to put up or shut up, right? So that certainly happens. I had a situation where I found a product based on a playground interaction with another father, hmm. and so you know that kind of stuff happens. I mean, you can find products anywhere, right? And usually, we go after the products. It's very rare that we'll invest in a company that's just come in on a cold email or over the transom. It rarely, if ever, happens. We really go after stuff. We find it, we go after it. We get you know introductions from all different kinds of people. And those are the companies we really want to invest in the most. On occasion, something will come in, we might like it, we'll watch it, and if we hear great things and we monitor it and see great things, we'll like it. But it takes time. We're not usually investing that quickly. You know, it takes time to build a relationship with the founder. So it sounds like you're doing your own A&R. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or do you have someone who does A&R for you? Uh, we do it ourselves. I mean, I have a team, but I myself personally look at probably 10 deals a day. 10 deals a day. Probably. That's, that's a lot of deals on the year. Yeah. And we log all of them. I mean, we know what's going on, but a lot of times we'll have deals that come to us that just have nothing to do with us. Like we don't do healthcare and some people will send us healthcare. So I will look at the deck because I want to do some of the courtesy of doing it. And I'll typically respond saying, you know, this is not for us, but we state emphatically that we really don't do healthcare. Right. So. Interesting. That's a lot, a lot of information and a lot of companies. How many deals do you do if you can share that with us? So it depends on the year. We've had years where we've only done three companies. We've had years where we've done 11 companies. Uh, this year so far, we've made two new investments and two follow-ons, and we just approved two more or actually almost three more deals. So we may get up to 10 this year. It really depends. But that's fairly typical of venture capital firms in our space and at our stage. People that do seed deals are doing, you know, two a month sometimes. Last question, because we're actually running out of time. We're now three minutes over time. This always happens. So much to talk about. It goes by too fast. You have offices in San Francisco and New York. Correct. Is one city better than the other for finding new companies or They're are you both great bi-coastal just to have that anchor? Well, we're bi-coastal because San Francisco is a very large eco ecosystem. It really is the leading venture capital and startup ecosystem in the United States. That's not to say that, not, that other ecosystems are not doing very well. I'm a born and bred New Yorker. I love New York. So New York is definitely catching up very, very quickly. And there are other ecosystems that we invest in as well. We invest in Boston, Raleigh, Seattle, Chicago, Austin, even Vancouver. And so we'll look for innovation anywhere. 
But the reality is, is that a lot of the concentration in startup world today is either in San Francisco or New York. And actually, most of our deals are not even in San Francisco anymore. Interesting. So you are a busy guy, 10 deals a day. And we are so excited that you're going to hear two pitches on this show live in July. So to recap, for listeners who are interested in sending in a deck and being a part of the show, we are looking for two companies. One is a food product. It must be something purchased daily, low to no sugar, have a good price point with good distribution, and most importantly, it should taste great. And if you don't bring it and he can't taste it, you should just not come. (laughs) Pretty much. The second type of company we're looking for is restaurant tech software or a platform. It needs to be more than a feature. It has to be fundamental to daily operations in some way, shape, or form. It needs to be scalable, ideally focused towards restaurant groups beyond the single operator. Your company should be late seed doing... Um, over a million a year for software a million a year and for um, the food product you know a million five plus the company can be located anywhere it's geographically an open market but the founders must be available to be in studio for the live broadcast of tech bites which will be on tuesday july 16th at 6 p.m if you would like to send in your deck for consideration email it to techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org I want to thank Josh for coming on the show and for agreeing to do the next show it's very exciting there's a lot of great advice and a great point of view here about the current state of restaurant companies and what's happening if you have an idea for a show get in touch with us you can also find us on social media HRN is our handle we are live Every Tuesday at 6 p.m. After that, you can subscribe, download, or listen on demand at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and your favorite podcasting platform. Matt Peterson is our engineer. Our theme song is Nomad, a CPU track by DJ Uptown Nico, who is spinning in Bonnaroo this weekend. You can find him on SoundCloud. He is part of the full-service radio DJ lineup. And again, it is our 10th anniversary. We are in the middle of our summer membership drive. Log on to heritageradionetwork.org. Click the beating heart, become a member, get some great swag, designate your donation to Tech Bytes. I will send you something along with my undying love. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.